Stories connect us. They build empathy and understanding across difference. Stories are the basic building blocks of community. If you are brave enough to share your story and have the empathy to listen. But when was the last time someone really listened to you or you listened to someone else? Each episode, we choose a theme and stories from our archives of thousands of stories collected using the Facing Projects model. Every story you hear was produced by two people who took the time to listen and share and collaborate on a monologue told from one of their lived experiences. People who listened instead of judged. What if we all sought to understand? This is The Facing Project. Hi, everyone. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. We're the founders of The Facing Project, and we've spent the past six years working with communities across the country to help them tell their own stories around issues that can often divide us. But they've used storytelling as a way to bring their own communities together. So here's how it works. Communities choose a topic to face. They work with local partners, often nonprofit partners, to uh, recruit individuals who are, that's the thing that they're facing. And then they also recruit writers in that community. And then the writers and the storytellers, the people facing the thing, are matched face-to-face. They have a conversation. They collaborate on a story that then is usually collected, published in a book, and then performed at some type of community um, monologue event. And we hope that's the beginning of the impact of the project. And since this is our first episode, we want to spend a little bit of time allowing you to get to know us and what our story is. And really, the story of The Facing Project dates back to about 13 years ago when you followed your shirt back to Honduras in 2005. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, kind of, it, it is the, actually that random. So at the time, I was had a very high-paying career as a scuba diving instructor in Key West, Florida, and I'd work retail jobs. And I'd save up all my money and I'd go blow it all traveling just to go around the world and and meet people and hear their stories and then write about it. And so I was looking for that next place to go. And I had this t-shirt as it come with me, my tropical paradise. And I thought, what if I just went wherever the shirt was made and just have adventures there? So I checked the tag. It was made in Honduras. And I went there and I went jungle, hiking, island exploring, scuba diving. And then I thought, hey, you know, I should at least go where my shirt was made, go to the factory, my shirt was made. So I showed up there, which is kind of awkward. Like, what do you say? I didn't have much thought put into it. And I met a young man who, I was 25 at that time, and he was also 25. His name was Emil Carr. And then it got really real. Like, oh my gosh, here's a guy that makes my shirt. I really never thought about who like made my clothes before. And so like, there's this whole group of people around the world who were kind of invisible, who I never really even um, thought about. And so meeting a car really kind of made me want to go and meet the rest of them. Uh, so I went on that trip. It took me around the world and uh, ended up becoming my first book, Where Am I Wearing? And a couple of things happened um, with that. That I, I realized that the people who make the biggest difference in the world are, are in their communities are local people helping local people. And I was at the time more of a global citizen, citizen of everywhere and, and nowhere at all, and a really crummy local citizen. So I wanted to get more engaged in my community, which is Muncie, Indiana. So I came back and I started to volunteer a lot. I was volunteering with this group called Teamwork for Quality Living. It works with individuals who are trying to work their way out of poverty. Around the same time, there's editorial came out, the debate about how many people in Muncie live in poverty. And 
if you counted the college students, it was uh, much higher, right? And there was this debate, well, you shouldn't count the college students. It's only this amount, right? And I thought that was kind of ridiculous. I think the most important poverty statistic is one. Do you know one single person who lives in poverty? And until you do, can you actually think about ways to help those individuals? Can you actually uh, you know, judge their decisions that they make or unless you know a single person? And so often in our society, um, we get so up in arms about particular topics and we don't know one single person who is an immigrant, who is who's gay, who is uh, addicted to drugs. Um, and so I thought, well, what if we could help these people, help, help them tell their own stories, right? And so that led to the First Facing Project. And JR happened to be a writer on that First Facing Project. Uh, you remember this. I do. <laughs> and um, How can I forget? How can you forget? And so he uh, really thought it was like something that could be shared with other communities. So he thought we should take it beyond Muncie. And we started working on it. And now we're in more than 100 communities across the country. And then sharing the Facing Project, JR has had a chance to share his own story, kind of see the impact. So why don't you tell us about that, JR? Yeah, you know, and really the start of the Facing Project model and sharing it across the country, when I got the chance to sit down with Pat, whose story I helped tell on Facing Poverty, we sat side by side in the Muncie Civic Theater to watch her story be performed on stage and to see this actor perform a story that I had written, but a story that she had lived was beyond amazing. And that's where I saw the real magic happen. And, and we began to share the model and, and we would see this magic happen in community after community. And then getting the chance to be vulnerable enough to then share my own story, I felt what it was like to be one of the storytellers. And while though, although it's similar to the magic that you feel when you're a writer and you're seeing the story you help tell on stage, it's a bit different because you're reminded constantly of the power your story has when you're brave enough to share it. Kelsey and I had the opportunity to tell our stories on stage at the University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And a friend of mine had recently died. And uh, it was actually the first guy I had ever dated in college. And Kelsey said, you have to share the story on stage. And I was really worried about doing that. It felt like such a vulnerable moment. But then I stepped back and I thought, well, what a hypocrite I'm being if I'm encouraging other people to be brave enough to share their stories, yet I'm not brave enough to stand on stage and share my own. And I thought it was a great idea going into it. And I was sitting in the audience and then I know JR is about to walk out and like share the story that I was like, yeah, man, you need to tell the story. And then he starts to tell it, and I'm like, what have I done? Like, he's about to share, like, his coming out story. In chapel. <laughs> it was in a chapel. I mean, it was I was at the University of Francis. We were essentially in, in a church. And I thought the same thing when I walked out on that stage. What has Kelsey done? But here I am in front of this audience of 200 people. So let's just roll with it. And I looked out into the crowd, and I saw nuns wearing habits, and I saw students staring at me blank-faced. And that moment I spoke the words, because I'm gay, I thought lightning was going to strike me. I did too. And it didn't. And then I realized, well, I'm not going to be struck <laughs> dead on this stage. So let's just keep rolling with my story. And I did that. 
And what was really great about that is afterward, we had uh, folks coming up to us just chit-chatting about our talk. And a nun came up to me and she grabbed both of my hands and she said, thank you for sharing your story because I've waited for so long for someone at this university to say they're gay and to speak those words, to give other students here who feel like they don't have a voice the courage to be themselves. And I realized in that moment the power of a story and the fact that by me being brave enough, by you encouraging me to be brave enough, right, to share that story on stage, I impacted this one woman who had been waiting for that. And then I had a student, a few people after her come up say to say to me, I'm gay, I'm on this campus, and I don't have anywhere else I can turn or anyone I can talk to. What should I do? And that is a vulnerable moment in itself, but it made me realize that my story was a resource for someone else, and she saw me as a resource who could help her. And so we had a good conversation and moved on from there. And time after time, we see this happen when we share stories from Facing Project or we share our own stories on stage. Other people feel empowered to come forward to say they have a similar experience. I mean, so often we start with like politics and ideology. Right. And that's what really divides us. And we feel like when we start with an individual's lived story, mm -hmm. that it's a common place where we can start that conversation. Um, and so I thought it was awesome that you shared that story. And it's been great to see what's happened with that. <laughs> Although oh, yeah. I was really worried. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a scary moment. You know what, what was really interesting about that? Uh, we shared that story again in Connecticut just a few months back. And there was a international student from Uganda who came up to me and he started to cry. And he said, I live in a country where I can be put to death or sent to prison for life for being gay, but this is who I am. And I felt like I couldn't ever tell anyone that, but I feel like I can tell you that now because you told me. And that just reminded me in that moment how fortunate I am to, to be where I am in my life and to be able to own that story, but to know that even someone who is from a completely different culture could understand that story made me realize the power of storytelling um, goes across cultures and connects us in a way that other actions may not. And the power of each of our own stories has to kind of unite people. Mm -hmm. So, which gets us to our, which our theme this episode, we chose unity, two stories from very different perspectives. And so let's just get to those stories. The anger is mine. Richard McKinney's story, as told to Tom Steiner, performed by Drew Vidal. I didn't start out hating Islam, I grew into it. It was an anger that lived and fed off of itself throughout my life. My anger flourished and dominated my life. Got me an early discharge from the Marines. Anger garnered me a diagnosis of PTSD that ended my military career. Led to a failed attempt at professional fighting. Anger fueled many confrontations and ended a career as guard at a local prison. Anger was three wives and lots of trouble with the law. It was the seed of my hatred. As my anger evolved into hatred, it became as vital an organ as my heart. I was afraid to let go of it for fear it was the only thing keeping me alive. It was what got me up in the morning. 
It dictated my every thought. It slowly eroded every other emotion until hatred was all I had left. Hatred led me to a 55-gallon drum, half filled with gas, half filled with oil, and two burner phones for detonation. I had it all planned out. I was going to place it behind the back stairs of the Islamic Center and set it off on a Friday during the Jumwa, when the place would be full. I'd be parked across the street watching it all happen. Nobody knew anything about my plans. It was going to be my statement and my statement alone. I knew I'd be caught. And that didn't bother me. The bombing just seemed that easy to do. I learned a long time ago it's easier to take a life when you have no feelings for that person. The news probably would have blamed... PTSD for my actions. However, for those who know, PTSD is triggered. PTSD is usually a spontaneous reaction. Bombing the center was not just a thought on Monday and put into action on Friday. It was a plan that I'd been working on for several months. I put a lot of thought into it because I wanted to do it right. So... What stopped me? My daughter was in grade school. She came home one day and told me about a schoolmate of hers whose mother came to pick him up. She was wearing a burqa and hijab, and I went off. I didn't want my daughter around those people. She just looked at me like I was crazy. She could not understand why I was so upset. And a light bulb went off. You are screwing this girl's life up. This is how prejudice gets passed on. It was a moment of lucidity that I had not experienced before. But I had no idea what to do next. Like most Americans, everything I knew about Islam was based on the news. TV and the military. And then I did something I never thought I would do. On a Friday, I walked into the Islamic Center and asked them to teach me what they think and feel Islam is. I was given some brochures and sat in the back reading them. My first impression was that these brochures were, were nothing but propaganda I didn't want to believe what I was reading. I wanted it to be lies. I wanted to see that these people condoned murder and torture. I needed to see uncaring of humanity. At one point in the evening, I realized that all of this had nothing to do with racism. It was xenophobia. I was in a room full of Arabs, and my only thoughts were of a picture of me on CNN with a sword through my throat. How stupid was that? This is the Midwest in America. Nothing like that happens here. But the real change came when I was handed a Koran and told to read it. Open my mind and just read it. That same night, a member sat at my feet professing his love of Islam. Maybe there's something to this. 
Within a month and a half of planning to blow up the mosque, I was ready to convert. And I did. This was it. I needed to be a Muslim. It suddenly felt like I could breathe. It all made sense to me. What compels me most about my journey is all the hatred and anger that had been festering in my body for so long has been replaced by twice as much love. My life has changed. My family now stands beside me as Muslims, and I've made it my life's work to help change the world I live in. My conversion has propelled me into a life of activism. My future is to teach and try to change hatred, and not just for Islam. There's hatred for so much. And there's no real reason for such hatred. In my opinion, hate stems from ignorance. Everyone at the mosque now knows about my plans to bomb the center. Muslims in this community feel safe here, and the shock of thinking something like that could happen in Muncie was hard to believe. Though it took several months for me to tell them, I wanted them to know. To know what Islam has done for me. And I want people to know that they can change. No matter how much hatred you have in your soul, you can change. It happened to me. From Kwarabanda to Muncie, Indiana, Mohammed Sabir Barami's story, as told to Bibi Barami, performed by Bryn Marlowe. I was born in the very small village in the Logman province in Afghanistan to Shamsi and Baram. The village was called the Poor People Village, or Kwarabanda. When I was five years old, my father died of tuberculosis. My only memory of him is standing at the end of his deathbed. My mother was left a widow, and I an only child. She raised me on her own after making the decision not to remarry. She supported me by working tirelessly, farming and sewing. During this time in rural Afghanistan, most people did not realize school was important. Most people remained focused on survival. Since my mother was a widow living in poverty, her decision to put me in school was unexpected. Although my mother was never educated herself, she was wise and she knew that an education would create opportunities for me. She sacrificed so much by working twice as hard so that I could go to school instead of work. Her sacrifice encouraged me to work hard in school, and by the time I got to high school, I was first in my class. After getting the highest score in my district in the national qualifying exam, I was selected to be a foreign exchange student in America, a place I had only allowed myself to dream about. My only hurdle was getting my family's approval. Although most of my family was against me going, my mother gave me her unwavering support. My trip to America was astonishing in all aspects. Coming from a village with no electricity, no roads, no cars, no stores, and little sustenance, traveling on an airplane alone was a major shock. Arriving in New York City was extraordinary and I was excited to see all that America had to offer. 
I took a bus to Sedalia, Missouri, where I stayed with an American host family, the DeMonts. I was pleasantly surprised by the generosity of my host family, my teachers, and the entire community. I honestly felt like a celebrity in my high school, and I greatly appreciated the warm welcome. I remember learning something very important in my first week from our neighbor Susie. In Afghanistan, it is very common to ask people detailed questions about their lives, including about such things as age and salary. After I asked Susie how old she was, she taught me never to ask a woman about her age. This was one of many things I learned about the new culture in which I had immersed myself. As the year came to an end, I was sad to leave my new family behind, but it was time to return home. Returning to Afghanistan was another difficult transition, as I was coming back to a place with severe poverty and a drastically different culture. I remember people observing me to see how westernized I had become. I became very conscious of my speech and body language, because if someone found me doing something that was out of the ordinary, they would start talking about my family and me. By the time I got back to Afghanistan, it was too late for me to take the college entrance exam, so my education was delayed by a year. I took advantage of my free time by finding a job as typist for the World Health Organization office in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. It was another great opportunity, and I was able to save money so that I could be financially independent throughout the medical school. I eventually took the entrance exam and was accepted into the medical program, which in Afghanistan is a total of seven years, including pre-medical study. In my sixth year of medical school, I experienced another major hurdle. The Afghan Communist Party, with help of Soviet Union, took over the country through a violent coup. The communists saw anyone who was not a part of the party as a danger to their authority. From the first day, they began taking people to prison, where the captives were interrogated and abused. In other cases, people were taken to be directly killed. Many of my communist classmates knew I was not only not a member of the party, but also against its ideology, so I was in constant fear of being taken to prison. One afternoon, during my surgical rotation, one of my classmates told me to go downstairs, but I could tell that something was going on. I had seen this happen to many of my classmates, so I was not surprised. When I went downstairs, my classmate, who was a communist, without any explanation, told me, get in the car, and took me to jail. I was interrogated for several days. In my responses to their questions, I told them that communists claim they are going to provide food, clothes, and shelter for the poor. I was the poorest of the poor, and I had not committed any crime. I was there for a month before one of the interrogators told me that someone recommended that he let me go. I still do not know who that person was. Even after I was released, it was clear that I had to join the party or leave the country. I did not reject their offers to join, nor did I accept them. I did not do anything. I stalled until I could make a plan to leave. Soviets invaded at the end of 1979. I graduated in early 1980. Right after graduation, I traveled through the mountains to escape the area the communists controlled. In the mountains, the Mujahideen, or the freedom fighters, provided me with shelter. I worked as a medical doctor for them for 10 months, 
and traveled with them as necessary. Soviets tried to attack us several times, and I was often in danger. In 1981, after my time there had ended, I made my way to a refugee camp in Pakistan. There I worked for about a year, providing medical assistance to other refugees. The refugee camp is also where I became engaged to my wife, Bibi Barami. Even during difficult times, happiness can be found. I contacted my American family from my year as a foreign exchange student, and they applied for me to come to the U.S. as a refugee. I came to the U.S. alone and decided to find a residency before getting my fiancé to join me. I worked as a respiratory therapist for a few years in Dallas, Texas, before finding a residency in Muncie. Then I applied for my fiancé to come to the America also, and we were married here in Indiana with the help of some friends. Fast forward to today. I remain happily married to my wife Bibi, and we have six beautiful children together. The hardships through which I went in my life made me so much more grateful for the life I have today. I am truly blessed. What's amazing is that McKinney went on to become the president of the Islamic Center. His term recently ended, and now Dr. Barami's wife, Bibi, is the president. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. To start a Facing Project in your community, visit us online at facingproject.com. To listen to more episodes, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. The Facing Project show is produced by Sean Ashcraft from Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and directed by Laura Williamson and Michael Dane, with editorial assistance provided by Amory Orchard. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. We'll be back next month with more stories from The Facing Project.